and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, April 16th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. are joined by a video conference by Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Hi. Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. And we welcome back from maternity leave Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hey there. So there is still only one big story this week in healthcare. That is obviously COVID-19. I am dividing this week's discussion into roughly three parts, what I'm calling the big picture, nerdy stuff, and politics. So let's start with the really, really big picture. We are still in the middle of this worldwide pandemic, but at least here in the U.S., we are surrounded by elected officials talking about how we're going to get out of this shutdown in the absence of either an effective treatment or a vaccine for COVID-19. We will get to the fight between the president and the nation's governors in a minute. But first, I want to talk about a growing number of proposals from think tanks really across the ideological spectrum about what a gradual reopening might look like. My impression is that just about all of the plans call for massive testing and contract tracing effort that we don't really have at the moment. Am I missing something or is that really what we're going to need to be able to safely reopen? I think that's absolutely <laughs> I think that's absolutely what we'll what we'll need and what they're all saying that we'll need and I think the the reason you know you're seeing a lot of these plans get put out there um is they you know feel that there is a gap um in in what the administration is talking about um and the abilities of what um the country and what states can do to test and to contact contract contact trace um and so they you know, to be able to do that, um, there's just a massive testing capacity that needs to be ramped up. I mean, we don't even have enough nasal swabs at the moment to get that kind of stuff done. Um, And so um, I think that without a vaccine or without treatment, um, we're certainly going before people can get back to work, which is what a lot of these plans are saying, we're going to need to know if they are safe to go into a workplace environment. I keep saying this, but, you know, everybody talks about the, you know, taking people's temperatures as they go into sort of public places. But now we know so much about people who can transmit before they have symptoms, you know, that's not necessarily going to tell you who's safe and who's not. I mean, are people going to be willing to go back to work just because the president or their governor says, "Okay, you can go back to work now? Well, that's something that the um, some of the CEOs told the president yesterday when they met with him was we can't ask people to come back to work and and get that liability on us um, if it's not absolutely safe for them to do so. We need like certainty that um, that we're not going to be sued. Tammy, you've been writing about sort of the the things that go that, that are happening to the economy. I mean, what is the sort of uh, uh, the, this intense need to reopen uh, the economy? Right. Well, we just saw this morning again over five million initial unemployment claims filed. So now, in the last month or so, we've had twenty two million initial un- unemployment cl- uh, claims filed. This far ex- far exceeds 
what happened in the Great Recession and also in such a short period of time. So you have so many people who are out of work right now. And of course, they're itching to get back. I mean, some are laid off, some are furloughed. They don't know what's going on. They don't know how long this is going to last. They do want to go back to work to start having a paycheck again. But also, you know, no one wants to go back to work to open up again and then have everything happen, you know, for the virus to resurface, for cases to spike. I mean, look what's what's happening in South Dakota now. And and then this to happen all over again. So it is a very, very tricky situation. Yeah, I mean, South Dakota is really a cautionary tale where there's been this enormous outbreak in a meatpacking plant um, in one of the states that the president keeps, you know, saying, well, maybe these are the states that we can reopen sooner because they don't have a lot of cases. Um, not having a lot of cases at the moment is no, no guarantee that you're not about to have a lot of cases, right? No, and there's also a ripple effect. So the governor has refused to... Uh, shut down, you know, to do the stay at home orders. So the meatpacking plant was still working. A couple hundred people got sick. And now there are two actually other plants now that have to stop operating because they're not getting the supplies from this original meatpacking company. So, you know, it ripples through the economy. Yeah. And it also, I mean, as we know, the, the virus doesn't respect state lines um, or to the extent that people don't respect state lines. Um, it's, you know, you get you get sick or you even you don't get sick, you get exposed and you go somewhere else and then you expose everybody else. Right. Although that's why we now have a lot of governors who are checking license plates and, you know, and air uh, line, you know, air passengers who are coming in saying, if you're coming into our state, you know, I live in New York and apparently nobody wants me. So I guess I'm going to have to stay in New York for the time being, because, you know, anywhere I try to go, apparently I'm going to be pulled over and quarantined. It's interesting, too, to see so many different states sort of start to band together and come up with plans together on how they want to reopen. So you don't really have individual states saying, here's what we're going to do. But they're grouping with neighboring states, just keeping in mind that, you know, as you mentioned, people travel from state to state and that in order to be successful, that whole kind of region has to have a handle on this. Yeah, and that's definitely happening. I mean, that's what started with uh, Cuomo started that from the very beginning with New Jersey and Connecticut, because especially, you know, I live in New York City with with New Jersey, you know, there's really no difference. People live in New Jersey, they work in New York, people work in, you know, live in New York, they work in New Jersey. So it really has to be, a, you know, a tri-state or even multi-state effort. And same here with the, you know, with the Washington, D.C. area where people, I mean, I live in Maryland and work in Washington, D.C. A lot of my colleagues live in Virginia, work in Washington, D.C. So obviously that also needs to be sort of a, a regional uh, contact. But meanwhile, um, despite what the president keeps saying that uh, everything is great, governors and doctors and patients are saying there still aren't nearly enough tests. And in places where there are enough testing capacity, there aren't enough test supplies. Anna, you already mentioned this, like swabs and the reagents needed to actually run the test. The same goes for ventilators. We might actually have an adequate supply of ventilators now, but apparently there are increasing shortages of the drugs needed for patients on those ventilators. And Anna, those shortages aren't going away anytime soon, are they? No, they're not Not only not going away, they've been growing. I mean, you see um, a new drug on FDA's drug shortage list that's related to ventilators pretty much every day um, in the last, you know, week or so. Um, so it's it's not going away. And the FDA is trying to get creative um, to get some of these, these drugs out there. Um, they're trying to increase pharmaceutical manufacturing capacity. Um, and then just uh, today we saw they're giving hospitals the ability to make their own versions of some of these drugs. So these are 
like painkillers and sedatives um, as, and muscle relaxers that are needed to go on ventilators. And they, um, they usually don't let hospitals do what's called compounding of medications. Um, but at this point, they're saying that the situation is dire enough and that they don't think they can increase the pharmaceutical manufacturing enough to do it. So they're going to let hospitals try to jump in. So, I mean, I guess the, the main thing is that a lot of these drugs and, and the things that go into making the drugs come from other countries that are themselves shut down, right? Don't we get most of our drugs from India and China? Right. There was a, a you know, obviously there are a lot more patients going into the hospital and that's putting a strain on the supply. But at the same time, there are, you know, we get a lot of uh, drugs, particularly the active pharmaceutical ingredients from uh, China and India and, you know, China particularly a, a couple months ago was shut down um, and then India has been and then even Italy is a pretty big uh, manufacturing hub. And so the gaps in the supply chain are just going to keep rolling as this virus takes its toll around the world. And so, you know, because we get our drugs from everywhere, you're going to see see the gaps coming in different places. One of the things um, that I've been following that the FDA has done is allow even some companies that really don't have the best track records to jump in and try to help. Um, you know, there is an, an import ban on this one company in India called IPCA. Um, it's a generic drug maker and it makes active pharmaceutical ingredients. And they lifted that import ban um, because of they had quality issues. So several years ago, the FDA said, no, you can't send products from these certain facilities into the U.S. anymore. They lifted that ban so they could make hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, which we know are the malaria drugs um, that the president has been pushing for COVID-19. So, um, you know, we don't, it, it'll be an interesting saga to watch down the line because we can't exactly say, you know, whether those drugs work for COVID-19. And then we don't really know the quality of those drugs that are, that are coming into the country uh, that are going to be used. Okay, that's ominous. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, it's okay, it's all ominous. So I have been covering health policy for more than three decades now, and I honestly cannot remember such partisanship during a public health crisis before. President Trump desperately wants to reopen things because of the damage being done to the economy and potentially to his re-election chances. He's basically said simultaneously that he is in total charge of the states, but anything that happens in the states is the state's own fault. Governors are not surprisingly not amused by this. Um, what impact is this fight having on the public's understanding of what's going on and what they should be doing? I can't help but think that it is not helping. Well, we've seen these protests, you know, of people coming out and congregating because they they think that some of these states should not be like Michigan and should not be doing these stay at home orders. So I think what's happening in partisan politics is sending a message to to people to do things that are entirely unsafe just because they have very strong feelings about uh, Democrats or Republicans. Although I I noticed this is very very Michigan, they all showed up in their cars. Oh, so they, <laughs> the, the the protest was a whole lot of people in their cars, so that they wouldn't be wouldn't be arrested. <laughs> well, no, but also wouldn't be standing right next to each other right, while they're exactly. saying that it's that it's an overreaction. They didn't get out of their cars. <laughs> well, no, and I mean you have you know people in Congress who are saying that shutting down the country is worse than the virus. And, you know, one representative saying that 
you know, the American way of life is more important than American lives. So I guess people who believe in him, you know, will be angry about all of these shutdowns and, you know, will want to move faster. And other people will say that, you know, we need to be safe first. I I think it is really important to remember that if you have lost your job or your paycheck um, because of this, like that, that is, it, it feels huge and it feels like the main thing going on even unless maybe you sell you're you're affected by the virus or someone you love um dies but it's such a devastating thing I think that's one thing to sort of keep in mind while it seems just absolutely crazy to want to reject all of the the public health and the science that's out there I think a lot of people are struggling really hard um, with the idea that they aren't getting paid and aren't going to find another job yeah I mean I did a story on food banks recently and we're seeing this again and i mean i think you guys have probably all seen the images of you know thousands of cars lining up in either parking lots or you know down the road in pittsburgh and the parking lots in texas to get food and i've you know i've been speaking to the food banks and they've just never seen anything like this again they were stressed obviously during the great recession but it took time and it wasn't as severe this is millions of people all at once losing their paychecks and they you know americans a lot of americans don't have a lot of savings so they are all of a sudden you know desperate for the one of the most basic needs in life food and they're just crowding at the uh they're crowding at the food banks and the food banks at the same time are seeing supply disruptions because we've all seen problems at the grocery stores. So they told me, this was two weeks ago, they told me that they were only getting 50% from one of their main channels because you know the, they had problems with delivery and problems with stocking. And also at the, the third, the triple whammy for the food banks is that their volunteers are not coming out as much because either they're getting sick, they're concerned, and because of social distancing, they just can't have as many volunteers working. So, you know, this is a real challenge, but I think, if you know, what we see in the food banks is just, uh, you know, an indication of how severe this is and, and why reopening the country when possible is, you know, at the forefront of so many people's minds. That's a perfect segue into my next question anyway, because I want to talk about not just the impact on the economy, but the impact of the economy on people's health. I mean, you know, with so many millions of people out of work, losing their health insurance and other benefits, and no obvious endpoint in sight. Um, Tammy, this is what you've been looking at, things like unemployment insurance and food stamps. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the difficulty with getting both of these things, obviously, a lot of states have had unemployment uh computer systems that date back to the 1970s and they're Mm -hmm. usually okay because they can handle you know hundreds of people but all of a sudden you have millions of people trying to get on at the same time and it's just not working no and i mean it's been you know fascinating what states have been trying to do i mean they're hiring they're contracting out to entire call centers and you know in florida they've gone to paper applications and again we saw photos of and videos of hundreds of people lining up, not necessarily social distancing because it's only so much as possible to, you know, grab paper to file for unemployment benefits because they need the money. So it's, you know, it's it's quite a desperate situation for many people and it's very scary. Uh, the one good thing, I guess, slightly good thing is, is that some of these companies are furloughing but maintaining benefits. So not everyone who's losing their job and who's going on unemployment will actually have to give up their health care. So, you know, Macy's, for instance, furloughed 
more than uh, something close to 125,000 people, I think, but they're maintaining their benefits at least for several weeks. So, but obviously this has, you know, impact on, you know, we talk about health policy, but things like unemployment and food, and I mean, these are like basic things that people really need to maintain their health, even if they have health insurance, right? Certainly. Yeah. Certainly. I mean, you know, if you're not able to get food, I mean, this is one of, you know, the big issue out before the coronavirus is the social determinants of health that everybody is talking about. And so if you are in a compromised position, if you know you have diabetes, if you have asthma or such, and you don't have a stable home, you don't have, you know, nutritious food and consistent food supply, then it's only going to make your conditions worse. And obviously, people then who are vulnerable to the coronavirus are only going to become even more vulnerable if they're, you know, having to live with other people or if, you know, they're living on the street, God forbid, uh, and, you know, and they don't have consistent food. And obviously, you know, the, this is having a big impact on the healthcare system, too. You would think just at first glance that, you know, healthcare uh, is doing great because we have all these sick people who are going to the hospital. But we have talked at least a little bit about how healthcare providers are, oddly enough, losing money and furloughing their employees because they aren't doing the routine things that make the money, the hip replacements and the, you know, the, the regular, the routine checkups. But we haven't talked as much about the potential impact on patients who aren't getting that routine care, particularly immunizations for kids uh, and people who need ongoing treatment for chronic conditions, could we end up with a whole different kind of health crisis when we finish with the COVID-19 crisis? I mean, yeah, it's possible because all of these, you know, sort of regular routine visits are being put on hold. It means that some of the, you know, preventive care that um, healthcare providers uh, use is now, you know, not happening. It means that, you know, people potentially, even if a surgery, for example, might be, um, you know, non-urgent, it doesn't mean that someone isn't, you know, very uncomfortable or in pain while they're waiting for that surgery. Um, and that's being put off. And so I think it'll probably take years to peel away all the different layers um, of, you know, how this impacted patients, how it impacted people's mental health, how it impacted um, drug overdose deaths. And, you know, we're still learning a little bit about that every week. But I, I feel like we still have so many questions about, you know, all those other priorities that, you know, we kind of talked about um, you know, in terms of, you know, the Trump administration addressing, you know, dialysis or opioid addiction and things like that, those all don't kind of go away. And so what what happens in a crisis like this and how much of that gets pushed back, um, I think is going to take a while to to figure out. It's putting a spotlight on kind of telemedicine and how we reimburse for it, whether we reimburse for it. Um, and because there are, you know, there are situations I had to take my daughter in for her six month visit and she needed vaccines. You know, it wasn't a question that I wasn't going to go, but it's still scary to need to go. Um, but everything else that she's needed, um, little things here and there, we've been able to do a, a video visit with the doctor. And I know a lot of, um, you know, separately, my um, colleague Cynthia Coons has been writing about a lot of um, mental health issues with, you know, patients using apps and things um, to be able to to get the care that they need, particularly given the stress that people are under right now. Um, but there's sort of this whole patchwork of, of how um, insurance companies are reimbursing for it or whether they're covering it or whether they're going to temporarily cover it. Um, so I think 
you know, it's probably been a long time coming because um, telemedicine has sort of been around, but maybe not been utilized as much as it could be. Um, and and so it's, it's getting a spotlight at the moment. It'll also be interesting to see what CMS does because Seema Verma is very much pushing telemedicine now for seniors. And then, you know, obviously that'll set the path up for others. And as well as you see, the uh, insurers are all, you know, pushing it more. But I think that uh, CMS has been somewhat reluctant. They've been they've been opening it up, but obviously not to this extent. And we'll see what happens after this is over. But I think it will remain, especially, and that will help people in rural areas and in areas where, you know, it's not that easy to see a doctor or not that easy for you to physically get to a doctor. Although, with Medicare, there's that issue of, you know, a lot of people on Medicare seniors don't necessarily have the setup to be able to do telemedicine. They end up doing a phone consultation that doesn't pay as much so that it, it all gets right. it, get, it gets complicated really fast. But but they are opening that for that as well. So. Yes. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, yeah. Administrator Verma did a call with reporters yesterday and I mm-hmm. asked her specifically, what do you think will change once this is all over? And that was the first thing that she brought up was the mm-hmm. telemedicine piece. All right. Well, let let us talk uh, about the more nerdy stuff. Um, We have talked quite a bit the past couple of weeks about the $100 billion in that last COVID relief bill passed by Congress. Um, The Department of Health and Human Services is distributing that first chunk of money, $30 billion of it, to hospitals, basically according to their Medicare billings. That is leaving some hospitals that that do not have as many Medicare patients, let us say, not very happy. Uh, Tammy, you chose a story about this for your extra credit. So why don't you tell us about that now? Right. It was an excellent story done by Kaiser Health News, of course, where they look to see how the money was distributed. And, you know, obviously we know that New York City and New York State is the hotspot with the most cases. And yet the formula, uh, according to Kaiser, was that we would only get about $12,000 per patient where, you know, I think it was it was Nebraska and possibly Wyoming that were getting, you know, far more, like over 300000 And this was even brought up by our governor, by Governor Cuomo earlier this week. Uh, saying, oh, it was uh, Minnesota, Nebraska, and Montana are getting more than 300,000, whereas New York is only getting 12,000. So that's, you know, that's a big issue. And Cuomo is not happy about it. The hospitals here are not happy about it. Uh, That was my question to Seema Verma yesterday. And she said that the next money is going to go out, you know, presumably this week or later this week, and will be, but you wouldn't tell us the formula. So we don't know how many are going to get it, but supposedly it's going to look more at uh, the people who are hard, you know, the, the hospitals in the areas that are hard hit and those that take care of a lot of Medicaid and uninsured. Because remember now, since the Trump administration is not opening a special enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act, uh, they're going to cover the uninsured through the same hospital fund. That's right. Kim, you've written about this also um, from the from the hospital's point of view rather than from the state's point of view. Yeah, well, it's interesting because so Congress set aside $100 billion. $30 billion has gone out. And it wasn't just hospitals who got that sort of initial amount of money. It was every type of provider. So you had last Friday podiatrists wake up to, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars newly in their account. You had um, ophthalmologists, you had uh, dermatologists, anyone who billed Medicare in the last year. And so 
a lot of hospitals now are kind of looking at the funding and saying, wait, this is not going to be enough because you already have that 30 billion going out, which because it billed Medicare, you still don't have pediatric facilities that are really very much touched by this. So they're going to need some funding. Um, you're going to have funding go more to nursing homes, which have been very hard hit um, and, you know, which mostly bill Medicaid. And so that's why there's now this push on Capitol Hill to not just, you know, distribute the money in a way that that reflects, you know, who has the greatest need because of the coronavirus outbreak, whether it means losing revenue or literally dealing with the issue on the front lines, but also saying, okay, we're going to need, you know, double that amount. So they're really pushing for another hundred billion. And um, at Business Insider, I have a story out today that um, interviews a safety net hospital in Chicago that's facing this surge that has spent millions of dollars and got about. 800,000 last Friday. So, um, you know, they're really pushing for more money. They're afraid they're not going to keep their doors open if they don't get more. Um, And it just, it, you know, it further exacerbates for safety net hospitals. Some of the financial issues that they already face, um, you know, are just made so much worse in a situation like this. So, so let's talk about that next bill that Congress is going to presumably do, assuming Congress is able to come back and when they're able to come back, which is still an issue since they say they cannot vote remotely. Um, Democrats want to use the next relief bill for much more expansive relief for individuals. They're concerned, obviously, about hospitals and the healthcare you know system, but also about you know individual patients. One proposal is to help people pay for COBRA coverage, which would keep them on their employer health plans rather rather than have them go to the Affordable Care Act exchanges since the administration said they're not going to reopen them. I think the idea here is to keep as many people as possible on payrolls with their current benefits attached to their current employers, rather than to have them transition to something else and then back to their employers when this is all over and they go back to work, assuming most of them go back to work, assuming most of those employers are still there and in business. Um, What would it actually mean to have the federal government pay people's COBRA? And would Republicans ever go along with that? It's an extra $14,000 per person because, you know, for family coverage, family coverage is about 20,000, but I believe people only pay around six or 7,000 of it. And the employer pays 14. And that's why COBRA is so unaffordable for so many people. You know, people love their employer coverage, but if they lose their job and have to take it all on, they don't appreciate the fact that their employer pays a lot of money for that and they would have to take it on for COBRA. So if the government is going to pay, it, it means that people still have to pay their share, presumably, but the government is going to pick up a huge tab to cover the employer share. Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like COBRA was one of those things that at the time, and I actually covered it in 1986 when it happened, it was sort of a a last minute add on to a big reconciliation bill, which is what COBRA actually stands for, Um, that, you know, the idea that people who would have trouble buying insurance in the individual market could keep their employer planned. In 1986, COBRA was still expensive. If you lose your job and you have to pay 100% of your health insurance, it's a lot of money, but it wasn't the kind of money that it is now. Um, And one of the things about the Affordable Care Act was to give people a way to, you know, continue to have health insurance without having to do COBRA. So I'm kind of intrigued by the idea of the Democrats pushing this so hard. I mean, people who lose their jobs, people who lose their job based coverage, even if the administration didn't open up the exchanges to a special enrollment period, if you lose your job based coverage, you have 60 days to enroll no matter what. The uh, Trump administration doesn't have to do anything. So people who lose their coverage do have an outlet in the Affordable Care Act. That's 
That's right. And I think that, and we've said this a couple of times, that the, the difference between actually opening, reopening the exchanges is really um, one of paperwork. There's a lot more paperwork. Uh, you have to prove that you lost your job. You usually have to get a letter from your employer. It, the documentation things are harder in the absence of just reopening the exchanges. And I should also point out that a number of states do still have their, I think it's uh, we're up to 11 states, have reopened enrollment sort of for everybody, including the people who just could have but didn't buy insurance last year. Okay, finally this week, just after we taped last week, presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden made his first big pitch for Bernie Sanders voters by proposing to lower the Medicare eligibility age from 65 to 60. Uh, Now, that may not sound like much, and it is far from Medicare for all, obviously, but it is way different from the Medicare buy-ins we've heard so much about in Congress. Um, What would that actually represent, and will the Bernie or bust crowd see it as anything attractive to them? I think, I mean, I think that, that it, you know, it, it obviously falls far short of, of what they envision under Medicare for All, where everyone would be enrolled in a government plan um, and private health insurance would essentially, you know, cease to exist. But it still represents a shift slightly left uh, for Joe Biden because, you know, up until now, it really was about, okay, you can have the option of buying into a government plan if you want to instead of private health insurance. So what he's offering now is very different. And it would also very much change the individual market mix that we see. So if you have um, older enrollees who, you know, are 60 and above enrolling in Medicare, that means that those kind of left in the rest of the pool are most likely healthier just because they're younger. And as you get older, you have more health conditions. And so that could help to uh, lower the amount, not just that, you know, the individual market is paying um, for premiums, but potentially also um, a lot of work plans could uh, become less expensive. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens, although the 60 and above uh, proposal that he has is different from what we've seen from members of Congress who would like to see that number actually go down to 55 and up buy-in. Uh, so I don't know how much support there would be, but it's it's definitely a, a sort of small, small olive branch, at least actually- maybe. Actually, one quirk I discovered when I was uh, writing a story about this last week is that that is uh, that I agreed with you that that it would that in all likelihood it would make the ACA marketplace uh, less expensive because you would get those older people out of it. It turns out that's not the case. There's a new Rand study that found that the younger people who were actually in the marketplaces are there because they're sicker and that the older people who were there because they've retired early are healthier and it actually probably wouldn't make that market better. But but what really? you said, but wow. it, yeah, which, which I found fascinating, but, but I think you're right that it would probably make the employer markets um, better to get those oldest people out of it because they have a much broader uh, risk pool than the than the marketplaces do. So so it's complicated. Um, okay. I was, but I'm sort of fascinated by the idea of um, of actually saying you know no you can actually join Medicare when you're 60 rather than when you're 65. That that would be very different from the you can buy in for possibly a lot of money, not as much as Cobra, but Medicare. The current Medicare system is pretty expensive. You have to buy drug coverage. You have to buy some kind of supplement. Um, it's it's not you know Medicare itself has a lot of cost sharing. Um, I'm just I'm sort of I'll be interested to see the way the the politics of this eventually play out. Assuming we're going to talk about something other than COVID nineteen in the next four months, which is entirely possible that we won't. Joe Biden did sell the idea as a direct reaction to 
COVID-19 saying that, you know, it's supposed to help alleviate, um, you know, some of the disparities that we've seen. Well, and also that older people who are losing their jobs now will probably have a harder time getting new jobs than younger people will. Right. And then along those same lines, how many people 60 to 65 will be able to actually leave their jobs to go on Medicare? Because now we see that people don't have enough savings necessarily to retire at 60, you know, maybe like they could years ago. So... It'll yeah. help some people who are in jobs where either they have enough money to retire or they're a little bit too sick to actually do the jobs and they're just hanging on because they need the Medicare. But I think a lot of people 60 to 65 are working. Yes. Or the, yeah, you're saying that people who are hanging on to their jobs because they need their employer health insurance and they can't get Medicare. Right, right. Yeah. Sorry. Yes, they need it if, they, if they're waiting to get Medicare. So they're only hanging on. But those people will, of course, love it if they can retire at 60. But- a lot of people either can't afford it or just don't even want to. Yeah. I mean, 60 is the new 50. <laughs> Indeed, says as someone who is 60. Um, all right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Tammy, you have done yours already. Um, Anna, why don't you go next? Sure. So mine is um, in the New York Times. It's by um, Rukmini Kalamaki, who's coming off her ISIS beat um, to cover COVID-19. So called Three Vans, Six Coolers, A Plane, A Storm, and Two Labs, A Nasal Swab's Journey. Um, I think I and probably everyone had heard a lot about these testing facilities and um, just how hard it is to to get tested for COVID-19. And um, I had no idea just how awful it is. I mean, if, if you obviously, if you have the virus, you feel terrible. Um, and people are having to line up in their cars at 11 o'clock at night, the night before the testing place opens, um, and sit in their cars, maybe sleep. I don't know what you could do. Um, and just, you know, she follows some of the people who are doing this as well as where the nasal swabs actually go um, through through one of these testing companies and how they're trying to triage and deal with the people going through the sites as well as the priority hospital swabs that are coming in as well. And so if you've heard a lot about how bad the testing um, is right now, but haven't really kind of quantified it in a way, um, this this is a great look at what's going on. None of this stuff is easy. Kimberly. Uh, Yes, I picked a piece from 538 by Kaylee Rogers. The title is, Why Did the World Shut Down for COVID-19 But Not Ebola, SARS, or Swine Flu? Um, You know, for those of us who've kind of been covering the different outbreaks over the years, um, it's a really good question that gets explored. Um, It looks at some of the ways that the illness, you know, passes on from people to people from person to person, uh, how deadly it is, and um, how hard it can be to isolate um, COVID-19 compared to some of these other cases. All right. Well, from the Department of Stories, I was planning to write myself. Mine is from Politico magazine by Dan Diamond, and it's called Inside America's Two-Decade Failure to Prepare for Coronavirus. It's basically about how every time there's a public health crisis, we all pay attention and buttress our public health infrastructure. And then when the immediate threat goes away, we defund everything that we just funded. You should really read the whole thing, but here is my favorite sentence. After each major health crisis of the last two decades, American health and political leaders 
have launched preparedness programs and issued blunt warnings to their successors, only to watch as those programs were defunded, staff was allowed to depart, and Washington forgot the stark lessons it had just learned. Um, Hopefully that won't happen this time. So that is our show for this week. Special thanks this week and all weeks to our ACE engineer, Francis Ying, who makes the magic happen. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Leonard KL. At Anna Edby. And I'm at Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.